0: Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the WGA strike as well as the SAG-AFTRA strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight.
1: Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause.
0: Also, please check out sagaftra.org for additional resources.
1: Making movies is hard, but casting for your movie doesn't have to be. With Casting Calls America, you can post your open roles for free in over 30 local markets nationwide.
0: And when you post your roles, they will automatically post to IMDB Pro to get even more eyes on your project. All actor submissions are delivered to your user-friendly dashboard, making your casting process easy.
1: You can even search our actor databases and invite actors you're interested in to audition to your project. Actors pay a small monthly fee and have all open roles delivered to their inbox each day.
0: Get your project started today. Today. It's casting made easy at castingcallsamerica.com. You
1: know, making movies is hard.
0: Making movies is hard.
1: Welcome, this is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi.
0: I'm Liz Manisha, I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making another one called Best Friends Forever. It's a horror comedy. I'm also a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative.
1: This week, we welcome documentary filmmakers Tommy Hyde and Aaron Wolf on the show to talk about their new documentary, Underdog, about a Vermont farmer who risks it all to go dog mushing in Alaska, which sounds amazing. <clears throat> After that, we play another round of The Game. But first, Liz, how are you doing?
0: I'm good. So, just for the record, we're bulk recording a bunch of these. So, our babies have not been born yet. I just want people to have the context because they might be listening to this later after the babies are born. I am in currently in a um, what do you call it when two people won't budge? <laughs> Stalemate? <laughs> Stalemate with Sean, my husband, person, partner thing I'm over <laughs> the middle name of our child. Oh, and wow. so, I went on Facebook and I asked. Friends and acquaintances to email him to urge him to reconsider his position, and people did. And now he has received a bunch of emails from strangers in favor of the middle name that I have chosen, and it is backfired because now he says he'll never change his mind because I have encouraged the public to get involved. (laughs)
1: Why did you do that? That was silly.
0: Because <laughs> I thought it was funny. And it is funny, but it has it's it is funny. not helping me <laughs> like in any way. <laughs> it's not helpful.
1: What? Can, can I can I hear like so do you have one name that you like and he has another name he likes and then you guys cannot agree upon that middle name?
0: He doesn't even. Have, he has a few names he's OK with. I want her to have my my last name as her middle name because that's what our son has. Manishal. Oh. Oh. But I got the first name. So Sean feels, and he, it's actually pretty, like he's like legitimately, he has a legitimate position because I got the first name and he got the last name. We should be compromising on the middle name, mm-hmm. but I've decided it's more funny if I just get two and he gets one. Mm. And so now I have to, I have to compromise, which I don't want to do. Wow.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Does Colin
1: have... Sean's last name or Yeah
0: Colin Manichelle Wright Is Colin's name Oh
1: okay cool And you want to do the same thing again You want to have it be like Her name Manichelle
0: Wright Yeah Uh, Because hyphenation I think is like It's tough I think hyphenation seems like a tough life Like it's confusing So yeah
1: We did that with BB. We did the hyphen. And and Beth was like, basically like, you shouldn't have done that. And I'm like, well... Oh, you regret it. It's (laughs)
0: interesting. Yeah.
1: And, uh, and, uh, you know, like, because I was talking to my friends... And uh, you know, his my friend's wife is Filipino and his their friend is Filipino, and so they just do like hella names. They just have yeah. four names. Yeah. So it's like the first there's like two first names and then like a middle name and a last name. Yeah. And so they just work their names into the naming. So like they both have oh. both last names as part of their names. So it's like they have like a first name, middle name, and two last names, but there's no hyphens ever. You know? Oh. And then the way it works with in the, in that culture is that like pe- anyone can decide to use the first or the second name in in calling you know in referring to the child. So like some yeah. people in the family will call the child this name, some will call it that name, whatever they want to do. It's whatever, you know. I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool, I like and then that. I was like, well, we should. We sh-. It's like, we should do that. And we're like, oh, too late. We did a hyphen on the first one. Hyphen on the second one it is. So we're just going to do <laughs> both do hyphens and just whatever. It's fine. Who cares? Wait, whatever. But they can decide. Your wife
0: has your last name or she has her last name?
1: She just has her. No, she never changed her name. So she okay, just so her last you're name.
0: like me and Sean. I never changed my last name. Sean hasn't changed his last name. Mm, yeah. And then... Uh, Sean's very traditional I don't know If that comes across In the show But he's very Very traditional I think so I didn't think That I would win the war So I didn't even I didn't even like Attempt for the last name So it's the middle name That's the The battlefield Right now
1: Right yeah I mean I You know that's why I said to my friends The other day I was like hey you know, I, I should have changed my name to Steele. That would have been so yes. cool. I should have been Ulrich Steele. Yes. And that would have been like the, the best director name ever. I just didn't think about that early enough. And they're like, no, yes. you should never have done that. Like, that would be the worst thing to
0: no, they're so old, there they're are old-fashioned. Oh, I know yeah. a few guys who have done that. I love it. I love it so yeah. much. I love it so much.
1: I, I feel like my mom probably would have been upset about it, you know. But like, she's already got the Brussels living on through my brother, so who cares? Right. Like, I could just be steel That's fine, you know.
0: It's delicate. People get weird about the last name debate. They, they do. get real, real sensitive about it
1: yeah i'm I'm okay with where I ended up with it, you know, in the end. but yeah, I mean, I basically this so it's so funny. like last time we were very diplomatic with the name on with BB and we both were very happy with the way it ended up. But this time I was like, his middle name is gonna be this. <laughs> like that is it, like for sure middle name after my grandpa, I don't know, In the fr- first name, whatever, like, we'll figure it out, you know, yeah. but like, and, and and luckily, that was like a very agreeable and, you know, mutually agreed upon good thing for the middle name, yeah. so it was never, I never had to fight for it or anything, it's just something I really wanted, but yeah, and then the, we don't even know the name yet, we're like, we have like, we oh, had like really? a whole long list, and we were like, ah, it's gonna be one of these, and then for a long time, we had a front runner, which I was pretty sure it was gonna be that. And then that got axed recently. And so now we're like, okay, we have two that we like and a bunch of other things out there. And so you'll just see. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. I have a guess of what I think it's going to be, but I think we're not going to know until we meet him. And then we'll just decide in the hospital and be like, that's what it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What's going on with you other than
1: that? I don't know. I mean, I'm not really working very much, which is great. It's it's like I have a tiny little bit of work left on this this show, which is cool. It got a lot less in the last week. Like we kind of decided to be more because it's everything's so unknown with with the, with a the strike. It's like really hard for because they were they were pitching it basically at the start yeah. of last week, and then by the end of the week, they're like, we're not going to get answers from like the biggest buyers for God knows how long because they're so busy right. with all the other stuff, you know, right. and so. Yeah, I just feel like it's, who knows? It's going to be a crazy thing. So, yeah, I don't know. But I'm trying to write. That's, like, one of my next thing that I want to do now that I have time. But I've been playing piano a lot lately, which has been really fun. But I want to, like, honor a friend of the show. Gosh, what's his name? Colin? Yeah, Colin, Colin Stryker. No, not Colin Stryker. Oh. It's not Colin. What's his name? <laughs> oh, my God. It could be
0: anyone. It could <laughs> be any person. I could say any name.
1: Clinton. Clinton's going to.
0: Oh, Clinton Cornwell.
1: Yeah. Clinton has been encouraging me, you know, to like write like, what did he say? He was like, yeah, 45 mi- minutes a day. Like try to do 45 minutes a day. And I was like, I don't know, dude. Like I could try like maybe 45 minutes a week. <laughs> let's let try it there, you know? So, yeah, I, I want to get into the, to a groove of that now. Now that I'm not not working and before the, the boy comes, like that's my next thing. Because I have a lot yeah. of passion and excitement over this this idea that I've been writing. I really do think it could be my next movie one day.
0: Yeah.
1: Think I could make it in Vallejo and do the whole backyard filmmaking thing that um Jen McGowan has talked about <laughs> rallied know,
0: against. Yeah.
1: A little a little disparagingly. Yeah, I think that would be really fun. So I'm I'm excited to keep working on that and have that be like the next thing that I do, you know, creatively. But yeah, what about you? Anything creative on your end right now? Or are you just no. thinking about names?
0: I'm on Amazon buying supplies that is my creativity. I I forgot about wipes. I forgot about diapers. Oh, I you forgot, forgot about that is- <laughs> There's a as you could see the crib is half built. I'm, like I literally I've left everything to the last minute. So we're doing that right now.
1: Well, it's better than it was yesterday where it was not built at all. <laughs> it's so in a box. I, I like to see that there's been, uh, you Progress. know, improvement there. Yeah. You know what you could also improve upon is going to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Podcast. This is the way that the show survives. This is how we keep things going. I am actually going to try to send out these pins that I owe people this <laughs> week. I have the names written down. I've got the pins right here. I've got <laughs> stickers. So that's my, my, another one of my goals before this, the, the boy is born to do that. Aww. But, but please... Support us. I will send out a pin if you if you support us at nine dollars, or if you just do $1.99, you get back access to the back catalog, which is really wonderful and amazing too. Also, don't forget to check out jambox.io, they're a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood Hollywood level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Tommy Hyde and Aaron Wolf.
0: Let's start out with the elevator pitch for underdog. Who wants to take that one on?
2: Yeah, underdog is the curiously optimistic tale of Doug Butler, who is a hardscrabble dairy farmer from Middlebury, Vermont, who risks the farm, chases dreams of dog mushing in Alaska. His
3: his world is falling apart while his dreams are coming true.
0: Well done. How many days did you shoot overall?
2: Days is a, is, is perhaps the, the wrong metric. It was a... Uh, seven year filming process, but approximately four and a half years of footage was thrown out due to a complete lack of understanding of of how to, how to film at the beginning.
3: (laughs) When she said days, I was like, what's 10 times 365.
0: (laughs) What can you talk about with regard to the budget?
2: The budget, I guess you'd call it a micro budget, you know, it's around a hundred thousand dollars all in and about half was fundraised and and half was cobbled together from the filmmakers themselves.
0: Can you tell us about the origin of the idea?
2: It started in a freshman class uh, in college where students went out for a month, a month-long course, intensive course, and students went out and were supposed to break the bubble and go out into the local town community and make a little... Uh, short film and, and write something about a local personality and the professor told me and a friend about a dairy farmer on the outskirts of town who he thought was named Doug who apparently had a couple sled dogs in the backyard by the heifer barn and so me and my friend Tito went over there and Doug had no idea we were coming but even before we got out of the car he was waving us on to show us the cows, the farm and and his dreams and he you know thought he would get us all covered in cow shit and we wouldn't show up the next day but we went to the local agway and picked up some what we thought were farmer jumpsuits turns out they're called coveralls and went back the next day and and made a um, crappy little three minute film and then just kept kept going back kept filming and 10 years later we have we have underdog
0: how, well you already answered this how long do you spend working on the film from the idea to the release we We're just on the precipice of the release right now and in the middle of May 2023. But if either of you could change one thing about the film in any way, shape or form, what would it be?
3: Maybe use a few more tripods in the beginning. Uh, it it's, it's hard to say because this film is so organic. It's such an old soul film. And it almost feels like now that we have this happy ending of sorts of a, of a release in, in L.A., that I wouldn't change a thing about what happened from my perspective.
2: Tommy? I agree with the tripod comment. Yeah, I wish I had scraped together enough cash to, to buy a proper camera early on. There's several... Cool moments in the film that were just you know filmed with borrowed or stolen equipment that I think could have looked and sounded just a little bit nicer if if you know I had had the funds to have a nicer camera. But as I've said many times before, a lot of great films have been made on shit equipment, and a lot of shit films have been made on great equipment. So it's also a bit of a badge of honor, I suppose.
0: Before we get too far into the interview, can you each ID yourselves and then? Can we talk a little bit about the transition from school project to involving Aaron in the process?
2: You want to start, Aaron? Sure.
3: I'm Aaron Wolf, and I'm a documentary filmmaker. I've been making feature documentaries for 25 years. Is the current number that I'm using? I, I met Tommy because, incredibly, we we went to the same school, and a guy that I used to play guitar with. Freshman year in college, which is 1982, had a daughter who went to Middlebury and connected me to Tommy, who was, I gather, playing guitar in the same freshman dorm that I did something like 20-something years later.
2: And I'm Tommy Hyde. I'm also a documentary filmmaker, and I have been working on this film, which is my first film, like I said, for the last 10 years, but I like to say in earnest and in a professional context, ever since Aaron and Mosaic Films have been involved since 2017, 2018, somewhere around there, which is when the aforementioned tripods started to get involved. And it was right after our our trip to Alaska with Doug. And it was sort of the moment that I realized there was something really special here. And that was my pitch to Aaron as we got sat on the same flight um coming back to to Vermont some some spring years ago. Remember that flight? We just happened yeah, to be next to so each incredible. other on a random connection. Yeah. <laughs> um
3: we had met and like talked and you know I was looking for the very unusual combination of qualities at least in the part of the world where where we live, in the Adirondacks of New York and the northern part of Vermont, for somebody who both was an editor and excited about working in film and also spoke Spanish. And so really, I was as interested in Tommy as a collaborator as I was in in this project. But we met and then then we didn't see each other for a while and happened to run into each other on the flight with, with Francois, right? Yeah. And I guess that was the sign, or that was the fate, or that was the kind of the deus ex machina. And as soon as I saw the material that... Tommy presented, aside from the kind of dizziness I got from some of the, the shots, I I felt like there was something really, really tremendous here and a really rare story. The kind of story that, you know, you almost have to be a first-time filmmaker to, to make and stick with. I, I find when I go to, to film festivals, more than half the time, maybe eight out of ten times, my favorite documentary is, is invariably a first-time filmmaker's film. There's a sense of joy and passion and collaboration, and you can almost feel the sort of enthusiasm behind the camera as much as you can feel the enthusiasm of this amazing protagonist, Doug, Doug Butler.
0: Well, let's get into the first few years because I act these. I mean, I know that we all know each other, but these are details that I'm not unfamiliar with. And if you essentially are throwing out four and a half years of the beginning of this production's footage but you still were so filled with conviction to keep going with the project for four and a half years. I'm kind of confused by the push and pull of that. Can you tell me what kept you going in the beginning before you knew for sure what the story would be?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So when that class my freshman year, which was probably like 12 or 13 years ago ended, I just stayed friends with Doug. I had spent a lot of summers growing up coming up to Vermont And the highlight every summer was always the Addison County Field Days, which is when, you know, all of the local agriculture community descended on these fairgrounds outside of Middlebury, which is near where my grandma lived. And they had tractor pulls and demolition derbies and like the largest gourd competition and 4-H competitions. And it, you know, for a suburban boy from Connecticut, it was like quite literally my first indication that there were... Different people out in the world um, when I was a young kid, and so when I found myself on an ATV behind Doug, you know his long hair hit me in the face, yeehawing on a back road with a bunch of you know sled dogs in front of an ATV. I was sort of like, "Whoa, this dude is you know cut from very much the same cloth that that community that I was so taken by as a kid is formed around." And I, I was sort of curious. I was. I was curious about Doug and I didn't know why. And I had had a camera from day one, so I kept bringing a camera every day I went over. And I think I slowly started to realize that, you know, I saw a lot of myself in Doug. You know, he was this this dreamer who would take you around these dilapidated barns and he'd tell you all these plans about how he's going to fix them up and, you know, how he had these sled dogs in the back and how he was going to Alaska this year. And slowly over time, I realized that a lot of those dreams hadn't come true. And then over a little bit more time, I realized that many of them weren't going to come true. And I'm, I sort of identify in the dreamer category. And I kind of wanted to know, like, is that okay if your dreams don't come true? And like, eventually I, I wondered what would it look like if, you know, if one of them actually did, you know, Doug is this person who, you know, he's a hunter. And if he sees a, a buck with just one horn, he absolutely loses his mind. If he sees a beautiful sunset over the Green Mountains, he absolutely loses his mind. So I was like, you know, his this big dream is to go to Alaska. What, how will he respond when he sees the Rocky Mountains? How will he respond when he does this thing he's been talking about doing and dreaming about doing for so long? And that was, all of those internal conversations were happening as I was, you know, I just sort of had a camera and it gave me, I think some of, the courage and perhaps creative license to to have some of these conversations, but also just feel comfortable like beginning to bleed into the fade into the background, you know, become one with the wallpaper. And I think while much of that footage is not used, the, the process of me hanging out with a camera for four years, this goes back to your, you know, like, could only really be a first time filmmaker thing, you know, allowed me to sort of be relatively unseen by a lot of folks by the time you know, I had my head screwed on tight enough to, to actually be filming well and things that, that might matter to a story.
0: And along those yeah, lines... Doug's, oh, go please go on.
2: Just, you know, it, the, the, the characteristic
3: of their relationship is such that I think, you know, it, it developed over time for Doug as much as it did for Tommy. And, you know, if you had shown up that first day with, you know, a giant camera and lights and you know, wirelesses and booms and, you know, you know, what some documentary crews actually use and some of the, you know, shoots that we've had subsequently, I don't think that that relationship would have developed the way it did. And I don't think that that, that magic between filmmaker and 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 film me that you see on the screen would have would have evolved.
0: I think we're on the same wavelength because that's where my curiosity is taking me now is like when you start to bring in Mosaic and Aaron and, a, you know, a production company, and you went from a one-person crew, it sounds like, to a more established production. How did you... I'm thinking about other documentary filmmakers who may be listening, right? How did you yeah. onboard the subject of your film through that process? How did you prepare them?
2: Well, the, the production side didn't... So Aaron came on right after the trip to Alaska, which I would say is probably the end of act two in the film. And so act three hadn't quite happened yet, which is the sale of Doug's farm and his race to craft a new destiny. And so I think the, the, you know, the camera got slightly upgraded and a tripod started making an appearance. And a lot of, we did a lot of filming of like establishing shots in different seasons. You know, we were starting in the, in the spirit of all Mosaic films, we were starting to edit and piece this assembly together as we were filming the last act. And so we had a good sense that the film was going to be organized by seasons. I didn't have certain footage that we would need to establish those. So it gave us time to to make shot lists, to go out and film certain things in di- different seasons. And it also gave us time to to talk about structure and talk about story. And there's there's this thing that happens if you film something for long enough where you sort of start to see things before they happen. Aaron, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but, like, it becomes kind of in your blood. And I remember, like, in the last, when Doug's Farm was going out of business and things were just happening, this very strange thing happened where I just knew what he was going to say, when he was going to say it, and was able to move the camera in response. And Aaron had, had, you know, from the discussions we had had from a scripting standpoint... I was quite literally in the edit while I was filming. And I think that's part of the reason why there's so much magic in the third act to the film. And a lot of people say, you know, it really gets, that's what really gets them towards the end. So I don't know, it was a bit rambly, but the, the actual, it was, you know, it didn't change a whole lot in that it was still me there with the exception of, you know, when Aaron and I would go down and film very specific cut-ins, but the, in, the intent and the preparation in going to film was was a whole a lot different at that point.
3: Yeah, I think I think that that you know the collaboration with with Mosaic on the creative side really happened a lot in the scripting, and Tommy and I worked really intensely to look at what we had to to write it out, to you know just put the three by five cards on the table and spread them out just like we always do, and to think about you know how the acts you know, would, would would break out. But it was a really great collaboration. And at the same time, Tommy and I were also co-producing another project and developing a third. So we got to try out, you know, different languages. And I think what, what's so cool in the larger context of filmmaking is that uh, films don't exist, you know, in a vacuum and they exist, you know, in the context of of lives and in documentary, often in lives that have lots of other things and lots of other, you know, careers uh, in play at the same time. And what was really cool about working on Underdog is that even though we had all these other projects and uh, both working together and independently, I felt like when we were focused in on this film we were able to to not think about anything else like when we were editing underdog and you know in that barely heated office in westport and uh, and looking at this bleak footage of like you know snowstorms on the tundra of vermont there was a special kind of focus that i think the material itself gave gave substance to
0: Aaron and coming on board and, and serving as a collaborator, but also it sounds like a mentor in the process. And I hope that's OK that I kind of inject that into the conversation. Were you screening all the dailies, like all the rushes? Like, were you watching all the footage or were you seeing what Tommy came up with and then expressing what you felt was missing? Or can you talk a little bit about the catch up process in in guiding and collaboration? in such a longitudinal piece.
3: Yeah, I think it was a little bit um, between the two of those I things that you presented. Like Tommy would definitely uh, Tommy would definitely present, you know, a scene or an idea of scenes. And then I think it was really on the assembly level that the collaboration became much more intertwined. And and that led to the suggestion that, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had something that did this? And Tommy would say, well, you know, back eight years ago, I think I remembered following him down into the basement. And it's amazing how sometimes like the, those shots, you know, some of those shots that didn't really, did the postcards of Hawaii make it into the final? No, no. That was, <laughs> oh, that scene was really great. Well, now we have a great thing to like do in our sort of <laughs> extra material. But, uh, you know, it was it was really the, the process of writing a film. And, you know, with a, with a documentary, there's always been this wonder of like, how do you write, you know, a non-scripted, film and I think with a verite film it's even more you know askable that question how, how do you write a verite film but in fact you're you're writing all the time And you're writing while you're shooting and you're writing while you're editing. And and those two, as Tommy said, became really intertwined. To me, this was a really great act of writing with both with material we had and with material that we we needed to go out and get.
2: And to just touch briefly on the just the, the mentor idea, because I think Aaron, that's totally the right word throughout this process. Aaron has been both a collaborator and a mentor. And, you know, I think you know, the context say like I had moved out to LA and wanted to work with, like, I had this idea that all rivers flow to Los Angeles and I wanted to work with bigger teams and it's a longer story than it's worth. But I ended up making social videos for American Idol, which was nothing <laughs> short of soul sucking. Um, and then just pulled the plug and I had this film the whole time I was writing, you know, I was, pretending to do my work and I was writing fundraising emails for underdog and I was editing underdog. And I had this, you know, after I met Aaron, I had this realization like, oh, like you really want to learn from someone. And so when Aaron had the, the, the trust in, in bringing me into the fold, it really was like my orientation, having zero film background. I didn't study film in college. Unlike Aaron, I didn't go to grad school. I hadn't made a film before and yet I had this, this very, very strong hunch that something was special and did not know which way was up in the process. And so Aaron was crucial in, in orienting me and then that collaboration grew as you know I, I started to figure out which end was up and, and, and that having a beginning, middle, and end to a scene is an important thing to consider one at a day, like really, like really rudiment stuff as rudimentary as that, like you can have all the nuggets of gold in the world, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not worth a damn unless it, it, it communicates something. And I think that's the great puzzle in verite filmmaking is how do you take this, this really close up intimate footage and, and give it a narrative and, and, and make it make sense. And impart some sense of the experience that you had on on other
0: folks. I love that.
3: I think that's really, really nicely put, Tommy. And, I, and you know, when you were talking too, I, I was reminded of, of my own apprenticeship in film. You know, I worked for a Peruvian director, feature film director, one of the, you know, storied directors of Peru in the last, you know, 50 years. And I think film is an apprenticeship. Certainly on the documentary level, there is a relationship that I had with Francisco Lombardi that you really kind of you talking about about meeting me and working with me really reminded me of that and you know my company without really realizing it i think has become sort of over the years dedicated to that that notion that film was a collaboration and film has a, a strong component of, of of mentorship and apprenticeship you know filmmakers who now are you know storied and certainly more successful than I am like Ian Chaney are people that you know I first worked with in a collaborative state on, on a film that I did I was just watching Laura Poitras new film and remembering that she was an assistant editor on my first feature and though I was hardly a mentor to her I've had that chance to be that with several people and I really like it's, it's not a one-way relationship at all. I really like the fact that, you know, if I can provide some of that, you know, uh, guidance on on one project, Tommy is in turn providing guidance on another project that we're working on because just as much as, you know, my experience may impart something of value in a, in a collaborative film relationship, just as I said earlier, Tommy's, you know, generational experience, Tommy's energy, Tommy's... His life experience has informed the projects we're working on collaboratively in the other direction. So it's it's never it may may the word mentorship may apply, but it's never a one way street.
0: Uh, This is very magical. I love the way you two talk about each other. (laughs) I I want to get at the core of a little bit of expectation and reality you know you're making this movie based off of a hunch and based off of a, a conviction that maybe even hard to analyze right even hard to like break down but it's pushing you forward and then you you get into slam dance and you get into camden and there's this like meeting of uh, there's like a confirmation that happens all of a sudden can you talk a little bit about the process of what is it where the rubber meets the road and when you realized that you had something that it wasn't just for you but it was actually for audiences as well.
2: That's a good question. I'm trying to remember when that light bulb sort of went off. I mean, I think it happened earlier than that because if I don't I don't think if you have that confirmation at various points within the actual filmmaking process, you likely will not make it till the end because it is just rips your heart out so many goddamn times. And, you know, we we also worked with Judy Irving, who's the filmmaker who made Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill and, and Dark Circle. She's a, a very much a one-man band. She's out in San Francisco. And certainly a lot of her trust after we you know, were in the assembly room for three, four months, and her interest and her cheerleading along the way meant a lot. But then also showing vignettes to farmers in the community, showing a process screening to a, a test audience, like all those nodes were really important in the, in the, the finishing process. But I also think just for my own, having not actually been to the finish line before for my own, you know, sanity, that was really helpful. And then Aaron, your reprised that you just, you said something along the lines of to me very early, like you have no idea how good it feels when you accomplish something like this, like, making a feature documentary is such a monumental task that like it feels so good and you can't imagine it. And like that, that definitely always stuck with me. And then, you know, the, so for me, it was, it was more the internal confirmation that helped. I think the, the, we got rejected from so many film festivals at first and getting into Camden was such a, was such a joy. And it was the film is oddly enough, like the film festival very early on that, Aaron, you, you had said something like, man, that would be just the perfect premiere festival. And it ended up working out in a way where a lot of these hopeful and then, you know, a lot of festivals that are, are of a class below Camden who had rejected us, like it ended up working out really great that that was the first place that we got to we got to play. And then Slam Dance was a surprise and obviously really wonderful. And those were we also released it during the pandemic. So we weren't going to many of these things, but it. Those two festivals, it felt like, you know, have coming from the poorly ventilated office in Westport, New York, being on this f- filmmaking island, in a sense, it was so cool to go to those spaces and those places because it felt like, oh, this is a community that gets it. And this is a community that I also, and and, and we, you know, really felt like we identified with in a really strong way. And that was cool. It was almost like it... it it was, it was more of a match rather than them like selecting us. Like we seemingly like we sort of found each other in those two communities. I feel a very strong sense of community now to, to both the slam dance community and the Camden community as a result. But it's huge. It was hugely important for that to, 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 to step off the, you know, the internal bit and, and transition from a, filmmaker into an advocate for a project that's a fun transition and then just to like see it live in other people's experiences is the coolest like sitting in a theater and watching other people react to things that were maybe funny five years ago but you forgot were funny that's a super cool and invigorating experience and just I think it you know it is fun enough that it you know it makes me cross out the diary entries of me saying never ever make a feature film (laughs) Again, whatever you do, it's like you just launch right back into it. I wonder if that's why you keep getting back into it. Aaron. I,
3: I was going to say that the moment where I realized that this film had something outside of that really, you know, isolated chamber in which we put it together was the fact that, you know, you talk about those jokes that you forgot were funny five years ago. Like, I never forgot that the jokes were funny, like the jokes made me laugh in the edit room over and over again. And the feeling that I was gonna cry happened over and over again, even when we were kind of tediously going through this, you know, the the same scene and trying to get it right and tweaking frames here or there, like the emotive qualities of this character and this perspective never got old. And I still feel incredibly emotional when I watch this story. And I, it's almost like the story which, you know, focused on a very narrow narrative uh, in a very isolated place. Tommy, you mentioned the the pandemic, and then the pandemic ha- happened. And you know, seeing the the poignancy of this character, you know, a hard scrabble dairy farmer, like you know, in what Doug lives. At first, you you kind of you you approach it with this this pathos, but before long, you realize that you know, in this world of of increasing uncertainty, in this world of of you know epidemic diseases in this world of, you know, winds and temperatures changing in ways that that we can't measure, we're all kind of like Doug. We're all kind of beset by forces beyond our control and Doug's ability to find humor and grace and joy in these in these like immense hardships that he faces suddenly becomes this really connective thing and and I don't think either one of us anticipated that we were making a film about ourselves You know, we really were making a film about this eccentric guy with the flowing blonde gray hair. But I think at some point we realized that we were making a film about about us.
0: So capping off this round two of questions is a lot of us are aware that this is a very tough time for documentaries and. Commercialism is very often at the top of filmmakers' minds, right? Like, how do I fit into the marketplace? How did you reconcile your personal conviction to make this movie with what you were seeing was happening in the marketplace?
3: Well, I didn't at all. <laughs> yeah. I, I, told Tommy, no. I told Tommy, no, this is not going to make money this film is not gonna it's not gonna be easy to sell do you remember that that first conversation
2: yeah it, it's yeah, not gonna it's very be very upfront
3: yeah I, I never ever promised you a rose garden <laughs> and i and i i knew that this would be tough but i just you know i just knew that it would be i knew it was worth it and tommy like uh that we just—it wasn't that long. It's been on this so long. It wasn't that long before that. Tommy and I met. The, I sold the film to Netflix, and there was some some money in the bank to you know invest, in air quotes. But I I think that uh, we can talk a little bit about the release and how we're thinking about it. In some ways, this this film is so old fashioned. It it almost it lends itself to kind of you know new ways of thinking about marketing because it is. It's like a movie that could have come out in 1972 or a movie that could have come out you know at the advent of the handheld camera era in the in the in the pennebaker years it's just it's a really old soul film and that's what i think tommy i've always wondered how you could be so young and make such an old soul project
2: yeah i don't know i i i think i did think that i was like discovering verite filmmaking as it was happening i was like oh my god no one's just getting rid of the interview and just following the subject around. <laughs> and then someone tapped me on the shoulder and like handed me a DVD of Don't Look Back. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, no, from my end, you know, before Aaron and I met, you know, didn't have... I, I figured that I wanted to be a documentary director and the easiest way to do that was just to be a documentary director and to go direct a film that intrigued me. And so for me, it was like the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, just like make the movie. And so I think my in, initial goals were, were relatively modest, which this movie has been a smash hit when you think about those goals. Obviously, total dream to, to, to make this very sustainably commercially. I do think it's a very delicate Dance, though, because if you're just sort of backward engineering content uh, based on what you think the market wants, then I think it's very easy to make something that doesn't feel true. And if it doesn't feel true to you and if it doesn't interest you, then it's very likely not going to interest other people. And I, I don't know, I guess I'm still holding out hope that we've made something that is as good as we can possibly make it. We really connect with it. We really believe in it. And... That's about all you can do. And then put your best foot forward in distributing it, like not losing the energy at the five-yard line, which I thought we had passed years ago, but it turns out you got to still plug these things as you keep going. So I'm still I'm still hopeful that we might have a uh, an unlikely commercial success on our hands, but we'll see.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I Nothing could be greater if that, than that outcome. And, you know, I, I would love to... Be able to acknowledge our interviewer and her championing of this project being there've been moments where kind of new energy has been injected into this. And the first was, you know, that, 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 that premiere. Another one I think was having Kira, our co-producer on board, yep. who Tommy took on a mentoring role for her. And, and that was kind of wonderful to see this sort of generational thing that happens on one side of the camera with, with Doug and his son and his, you know nephews and grandsons and and it, it was also happening you know in 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 that same way on the on the production side and you know every time this film has seemed like it was too heavy to bear too difficult to continue there's been this like new energy kira and liz let's let's be honest like your yes your authenticity in championing this film and telling us even on a couple of occasions you know believe me this is this is this is a good project and and that there you know and that there are homes for films like this and you just you just were so unwavering in that belief. And and now, you know, like any good parent, you've passed it on to the kind of next the next phase of its life. And we just had a meeting in New York with our distributor, first friend features, that we're so excited to work with. They're such an old school distributed distribution house with, you know, an old school office in an old school neighborhood. And as we sat over, you know, Turkish food the other day talking about this. This project and how we're going to get out in the world with our our new collaborator Cheyenne, I I felt like oh wow this is another chapter where this new energy has come into the project and so Tommy you know maybe you're be right yeah, maybe it's
0: not a pipe dream and I hope I didn't in any way insinuate that it that it is in the forming <laughs> of
2: the question. No it 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 all I think it always is documentary is inherent unless you have a you know you've sold something before you make it it's it's. It's a long shot. I joke, I bank at the same place that uh, Doug Butler, the protagonist, banks. And I joke with them that uh, documentary filmmaking is second only to dairy farming in inadvisable uh, businesses to start up. Um, But it doesn't make them not worthy um, and important and wonderful and uh, soul refreshing and all that and all that good stuff.
3: My wife and I are co-owners of a, of a tavern in, in upstate New York um, in Elizabethtown called the Deers Head Inn and when we first got involved in that, people said wow, you found the only thing dumber than documentary <laughs> 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 but the restaurant's still going and, and so is our filmmaking
0: We we will do a call out specifically to your release in the, in the body of our show but with our five minutes we have left I want to see if how many of these final six questions we can get in? So yeah. if this will again, we'll, we'll attempt this to be a lightning round, and I'm gonna I'm gonna cherry pick a little bit. So my favorite question is: What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received, or or that you like to dole out?
2: I got this one. Anything anyone has ever told you is bullshit, <laughs> and you will find your own filmmaking style by going out there and, and doing it yourself. That was at a bar at a film festival from. Bill Ross, who's a very tape filmmaker, who I really admire, and I dole that one out as well with credit.
0: <laughs> Aaron, do you have one that you want to share as well?
3: Uh, mine is a little less uh, entertaining than Tommy's, but like someone once told me to always schedule half the amount of, when you're on a documentary shoot to to schedule half the time you, you have planned in any given location and know in advance what you're going to be doing for half the time so that you can not just arrive and say okay we're here what do we do but so that you can learn things in that half time that you've planned that will send you on journeys for the other half of that time that you never would have imagined
0: mm-hmm. i like that do you want to share some bad advice either of you i mean some of it is Ingrained in the good advice, but have you heard any just real shitty advice?
2: I can't think of any right now.
3: Okay. I can. People tell you never, like, never to start editing at the beginning of your film, like, and to this day, like, every single project that I've worked on, all I can think of is like when that. Red curtain opens in the, you know, the Lemley Theater in Los Angeles. What's the first thing you want people to see? And what's the first thing you want people to hear? And I don't know how many people have told me never start a film
2: at the beginning.
3: And every single
0: one I have, and I'm always glad I did. If you could go back in time, oh, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself?
2: Mm. It's all going to be okay. And don't stop fundraising.
3: Make more films about sports heroes.
0: Is making movies hard?
2: Extremely difficult, but also the, I think the things that are the most hard are the most fulfilling. It's
3: hard, but those those moments of bliss are hard to imagine getting in, in any other pursuit.
0: How can people support you while, while, the, while you gather up all your theatrical dates and all your plans for digital distribution? Where can people go right this second to support the two of you?
2: Underdogfilm.org. You can also follow us on Instagram, Uh, underdog underscore documentary we've got some hip posters for sale and lots of good content and you can stay tuned on both of those sites for a theatrical screening near you Um, and um, oh sorry i was just gonna say and and you know if you're stoked on the film you can always reach out to us we love chatting and if you're in Vermont swing by the farm to share a, a six pack with us and duck
3: and uh in the larger context you can go to mosaicfilmsinc.com m o s a i c f i l m s i n c.com to see not only a little bit more about underdog of the film but about some of the other projects that Tommy and I and Kira are collaborating
2: on oh yeah and the, the last thing i'll add and if you do have a chance to see the film i don't know if this makes sense to add but if you do have the chance to see a film leave us a review on letterboxd or imdb or rotten tomatoes love to hear what folks are thinking
0: do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes
1: jump over to our patreon page at patreon.com slash mmih and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month
0: that's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on itunes that you can listen to whenever you please
1: but without any more blibber blabber back to the show Liz, what do you remember about your chat with Tommy and Aaron?
0: I love them. They're I mean, I it's probably very clear that they're my clients and that I did sales <laughs> for their film. And I, I was committed to this film for a very long time. I think they brought me on and we pitched and we pitched and then we reevaluated and we pitched to more people and we reevaluated and they ended up at a home that, as far as I know, they're very happy with and that makes me incredibly gratified to to have put all the time and effort in and i just love how transparent they are i love how kind they are i'm just massive fans of this film and these filmmakers i think everyone should go watch underdog right this second and amazing and you should check it out too auric because you didn't get to see it so i know in the midst of all of the free time you're gonna have by the time this episode comes out you should just go rent underdog
1: i should but i won't but i should because it does sound like a cool movie. I think actually it's something that Beth would really like. I think she'd really enjoy a documentary about a farmer who wants to, you know, go dog mushing in Alaska. I think that'd be it's really very cool. very
0: sweet. It's a really good character. But now it's time for the game. What is Ooh. the game, you ask? Well, it is a hand spun homemade segment by our producer, Eric Toms who puts forth a hypothetical indie film quandary problem challenge for us to solve. And we hear these blind. So neither of us have read or heard this question that uh, Eric has put together. And I'm going to read it for Ulrich to respond to right now. So you've just wrapped on your latest feature film. You're confident that with your expertise and the experience of the team you've assembled, the film will be seen by a fairly large audience. You receive a call from a prominent distributor who offers you a very lucrative deal. In fact, it's the biggest deal of any of your projects has ever been offered. You're super excited, but then you start to hear stories from younger and less experienced filmmakers who are given bad deals by the same distributor. You vet the contract with your lawyers, and it's clear that they can't change any of the details nor are there any loopholes you need to worry about, but by going with these, but by going with this distributor, you can gain the reputation of being complacent when it comes to predatory business practices. Do you a take the deal, knowing that these young filmmakers just learned a valuable lesson? Always get a lawyer to look over your contracts before signing anything. B walk away from the deal in an act to show solidarity with filmmakers and stand united against this kind of business practice. C. Sit down with the distributor and ask about the other deals in the hopes of getting some sort of clarity as to how these rumors began. That way, when you're asked about your decision later, you'll have an explanation as to why you made your choice. D. Other. What do you do, director? What do you do?
1: So it's not that my deal is bad. It's that they've had bad deals with other filmmakers And I don't want to be associated with a company or I I could not want to be associated with a company that like is giving bad deals to other filmmakers.
0: Well, he doesn't say whether the deal is good or bad. He says that there's no wiggle room on the contract. But he also says that it's lucrative. So it's vague for what it's worth.
1: Right. But if it's lucrative... But the other and the other filmmakers are complaining because they got a bad deal that wasn't lucrative. That's what
0: or he didn't. I mean, this is Eric. This is for a distribution nerd. I have some nitpicks about this question. but I'm <laughs> not going to go into it. He's only saying that this company has a reputation for being predatory and that, yes, that these young filmmakers had bad deals. But it doesn't say it doesn't. Explain a definition of bad deal Because I think different people Interpret bad deal differently Right Right. Bad deal could be lucrative But predatory too Is what I'm trying to say But ultimately Mm. I think the important elements to remember are It's a lucrative deal And this company has a bad reputation
1: Hmm Okay I mean a lot of companies have bad reputations Right So like I feel like that's I'm, I'm not so concerned about that I feel like If if it's the best thing for the movie and it's also the best thing for me financially, I guess I'm I'm concerned. I'm just a little confused about like what the if it's just to be associated with a company with a bad reputation, you know, like that's one thing. But like, it doesn't really sound like this is a bad deal for me. If I've had my my lawyers, you know, vet the contract and they're all like, yeah, we can't change anything, but it looks good. Like you're getting this amount of money. Like if they're buying the movie out and, like, they're going to distribute it and it's going to get seen somewhere, it almost seems like, like, yeah, like, you got to go for it. Like, you got to move your career forward. I mean, if it was Harvey Weinstein, probably not. (laughs) Then I think you just have to not do it, you know? But if it's, like, I don't know, like, a a company that maybe is, like, a, a big name, but, like, you know, people are talking shit, like, you know, then I think, yeah, it sucks that they did that to other filmmakers and, like, you know, I don't really like you know want to be associated with that but if it's not like something so terrible that like is if it's just business stuff then it it seems like okay maybe we just go with it you know but i don't know it, it also this question is weird because it, it just it's weird it word. just seems like what like what's like, is that the only negative, you know? And I feel like right. if that is the only negative, if it's nothing deplorable, like they're bad people,
3: yeah.
1: or like they have, they're doing things that are bad for filmmaking and bad for filmmakers, but if they're just like, you know, they've made some deals that took advantage of filmmakers, I mean, that's what everyone's trying to do. They're all trying to take advantage. They're all trying to get the best deal that they can, you know? And so if they offer me a good deal that's fair, and they're going to get my movie seen, you know, in a big way because they're a big company, and, you know, it feels like I should just go with it. So I don't know. What do you think? That's what would totally you do? fine.
0: Well, it's so funny because it's like, this is literally what I do. So, you know, my option D would be like, talk to me. And then like, <laughs> I would know the reputation of the distributor and I would know other filmmakers that work with this distributor. And I would maybe know something that the lawyers possibly wouldn't in terms of negotiating the deal. Right. I would right. also say, Eric doesn't mention this filmmaker, you, this hypothetical filmmaker, talking to other distributors and seeing what other deals there are. Like this may Mm -hmm. be a lucrative deal, but like you don't want to just evaluate one offer. You want to see who else is interested. Right. So mine would be D it would be other go find out what other options there are in the marketplace. And if this is indeed the best deal, yes, you go with it. And then, you know, you talk to those other filmmakers and you support them in their future projects. And you yeah. improve distribution literacy for all filmmakers. And that's like a service that you participate in.
1: Wow. Again, nailing it, Liz. Just Nails like, it! The best answers ever. yes Yeah, I like I like that. I mean I guess like in my mind it was like you know yeah, I think I think that's no. I think that's great. I I definitely you should totally, you know, compare it to other offers, see if you have any other offers. And then you know, I guess the, the red flag would be if like no one else is offering me anything as good as these people, then maybe it's like, oh, maybe there is something negative to this if they're the only ones offering, you know, whatever. But then again, on the other hand, it's like, well, that would just never happen. you know. So I don't know. But yeah, very interesting. We'd love to hear what other people think about this.
0: Well, they can send us a question, comment or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If y'all like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. wanted to shout out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through all the programs that they offer, including publishing your log line to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers lists featuring some of the best writers. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Tommy Hyde and Aaron Wolf for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymoud, for doing the editing and Robert Jones for doing our social media. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week.
1: Also, don't forget to check out our Jambox.io, our Jambox.io.